returning to this theme of big questions that need big answers, and we started at the foundational level, which is our source of truth, which is God's Word, the Bible, and we spoke about why we ought to believe the Bible based on the historical fact of Jesus' death and resurrection and how that historical fact validates the New Testament and the New Testament itself is what validates the Old Testament. If we believe that the New Testament is historically accurate and trustworthy, uh, and what we find there is mostly the story about Jesus, uh, and we believe that Jesus is God in flesh, God incarnate, then it's very reasonable uh, to believe that the things that Jesus said, the words that he spoke, are also trustworthy and accurate. And when Jesus spoke, often the basis for the words uh, and the teachings that he shared uh, were from the Old Testament. And so because of that, we believe that the Old Testament is validated. We believe that we can trust what the Bible has to say about itself. One of the things that the Bible teaches us is that Jesus is the only way. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Now, oftentimes, when people in the world hear these kinds of statements, they feel that we are taking as Christians a position that is very intolerant and perhaps even arrogant because we live in a, in a society that is characterized by pluralism. That is, that uh, there are multiple perspectives on truth and, and that all so-called truths are valid truths, and your truth is good for you, but I don't see it that way. I see it differently, and so my truth is, is good for me, and we just, you know, we just respect and love each other, and uh, we don't want to do or say anything to hurt anybody's feelings or anything like that, so we just all try to get along and uh, one, one big happy family. And everything, you know, it's kind of that idea that all roads lead to heaven. Yeah, all, all religions are valid. All religions are true. The, however, even, you know, there's no world religion that really believes that. Even those that are characterized by multitude of gods, even those uh, religions uh, have some element of exclusivity, meaning they claim a truth that is exclusive to them and leaves out others. In real life, no one can avoid truth claims, and truth claims always exclude it's just, a, it's just a fact of life. It's not that we're trying to be unkind or, or uh, arrogant uh, or exclusive. Uh, it's not like we're trying, you know, to raise fences and put up, keep off the grass signs and, and leave others out. It's the simple fact that, uh, that logically... You cannot have two ideas that are opposed to each other and have them both be true at the same time. 
you know, you can't look out at the, the white car and say it's a black car. Uh, it, it can't be both. It's either one or it's the other. And essentially, the world that we live in, this is what we are trying to do, what people are trying to do in the, in the world at large, is they're trying to say that something, it can be both, uh, both things at the same time. And uh, if I may say it very simply, it just ain't so. It just ain't so. Also, faith. Um, this is something else that we could talk about, and I'll just mention briefly. Faith has no impact on reality. Did you know that? Reality is what it is, and truth is what it is. And your faith has no impact on that. In other words, believing something doesn't make it so. It either is or it isn't. And, and faith, uh, <laughs> faith functions really only when our faith is placed in truth something that corresponds with reality. That's another thing that is a popular idea in the world that we live in, and it is that, that idea that, well, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe in something. You know, it's faith. That's what matters. Oh, it matters very much what you believe in, friends. Your faith in a lie will not make that lie truth, no matter how hard you believe it. It will not change it. Let's see, I believe it was two weeks ago that we started talking about this, part one of this idea, this big question, isn't Christianity intolerant and arrogant? And uh, we talked about the idea that tolerance is not really a virtue. Nobody wants to be merely tolerated. Um, and because of the unavoidable and exclusive nature of truth, many assume that those who claim to know the truth are arrogant, and that we look down our noses at other people and say, well, because you do not believe it this way, or because you do not see it the way I see it, you are wrong, and I am right. Now, let me be clear. There is a, a way in which we can take our position and our belief in God's Word that could be arrogant. We're going to talk about that this morning, but, but let me just, you know, just simply because we claim to know and believe a truth and we conform our lives to what we believe is truth, that does not make us arrogant. doesn't make anyone arrogant. Let's, you know, if we, if we use this another way, um, say, for example, the law of gravity. You know, nobody's arguing or disputing about the law of gravity. Uh, but we said, you know, I know and believe that the law of gravity is a reality. That is, that is truth. And so I conform my life to that truth. And, you know, there's not really anybody that, that is going to go around and uh, say, well, you're, you know, you're just arrogant because you claim to know this truth. 
but I choose not to believe. You know, there was a guy, a young man, not too long ago that climbed up the Devon Tower. Did you see that in the news? I mean, he no, no harness or wires or anything. I mean, he just physically climbed up the side of the building. And, um, you know, he could say, well, I just choose to ignore the law of gravity. I'm not going to conform my life to it. And you people that believe in the law of gravity, well, you're just arrogant. Well, no, nobody does that. That's foolishness. <clears throat> so, friends, the fact that we as Christians claim to believe a truth that is exclusive in its claims and leaves out anything that is opposed to it, that alone does not make us arrogant. The reality is that the only place for tolerance for us, as it is defined by our society, is that we must respect each other's rights to believe differently. We must... Re- can, can somebody say amen to that? It's a little half-hearted. Um, we must respect... Even if... You know, even Jesus did this. Jesus didn't push himself on anybody against their will. When people decided they did not want to place their faith in him as the Messiah, he allowed them to walk away, and many did so. All too often it seems that the church and Christians, and especially some that have been characterized as being strongly evangelistic, Uh, we have been uh, characterized as pushing religion on people, pushing it on people against their will. Let me encourage you, be, you know, if if God puts his thumb in your back, then by all means stand up for what you believe in. If God puts his thumb in your back, share your faith. But don't continue to try to press the demands of the gospel on someone if they don't want to hear it, if they don't want to hear what you have to say. You know, one of the things that Jesus said to his followers, and that I believe he would still impress to us, is that we are to be as wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Well, have you ever wondered what is the wisdom of the serpent that Jesus was talking about? I heard one man say this, and I believe that it really makes a lot of sense. The wisdom of the serpent is timeliness. Timeliness. The serpent does not chase after its prey or after its enemies. or It, it waits until it comes within range, within striking distance. It's patient. It waits. And that is the wisdom that we as Christians ought to have when we try to share our faith with others, to have the wisdom of timeliness. D.L. Moody said this, No one should preach about hell without a tear in his eye. And I believe, honestly, that there have been times when preachers and Christians alike have spoken of hell in a way that made them sound almost happy that some people were going there. Have any of you heard that? 
kind of thing. I remember uh, a number of years ago going to the to the uh, to a university. I was going to try to do some do some personal evangelism and and ha- maybe hand out some tracts and start some conversations with people. This was a number of years ago, and. Um, I found a place where there were a lot of people gathered, and there was a man there from another church, another persuasion, and he had a large number of people gathered there, university students, and um, they did not gather to listen to him so much out of interest for what he had to say, but simply because he was so provocative. And he would say things like, now I want all of you sinners to come down to the church where that I'm a part of and, and hear about the gospel. And that is, exactly the kind of, that is exactly the kind of words that he used to refer to these people. Now can I ask you how appealing would that be to have someone say to you, now I want all of you sinners to come down and hear me preach and hear about the good news. That's not appealing at all. Intolerance has to do with our perspective on truth claims. I made this statement uh, a couple weeks ago and someone asked me about it afterwards and I want to be real clear. I want to make it again. Intolerance is okay when we're dealing with the truth. Do you understand what I mean by that? I'm not talking about an attitude. I'm talking about the fact that truth is truth. And if you're dealing with the truth, there's no, it either is or it isn't. Tolerance, you can look up, uh, you can look up, uh, I heard one man say he, he had a, a multiple volume set of, of a dictionary and of all of the meanings for the word tolerance, he said they're all, they all tend towards the negative. You know, if you, are, uh, if you know anything about engineering or mechanics, uh, do you know what a tolerance is? A, a tolerance, that is the, the degree to which a, a specific measurement or item, it is a degree to which it can vary and have that item still function, still work. So it's, it's kind of a negative idea. No room for tolerance when we're dealing with the truth. However, arrogance is an attitude. Arrogance is an attitude, and Jesus him, himself spoke about this. Uh, he addressed this. We find it in Luke chapter 18 and verse 9. Luke chapter 18 and verse 9. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt or with arrogance. Verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, 
God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbled himself will be exalted. Let's take a few moments this morning and look at this passage of Scripture and break it down. First of all, let's look at the good guy. The good guy in this story, verse 11 and 12. The Pharisee, he was a man who said uh, he, he, he separated himself. First of all, I'm getting a little bit ahead. Uh, verse 11, he was standing by himself. He, he did not want to be with the riffraff. You know, he, he was better than everybody else. He separated himself. There, now, I, I should pause here a moment and say that there are a variety of reasons why people separate themselves. Um, I'll just be honest with you and tell you that I am the kind of person with a temperament and a personality that if I, if I do, if I allow myself to do what I am predisposed to do, I tend to separate myself from others. It's not that I, that I don't like people. It's not that I, uh, I am antisocial. It's just I'm kind of a, I'm a, uh, what's the word? Help me out. Introvert. Thank you. That's the word I was trying to think of. I'm an introvert. I spend most of my time inside my own head. Uh, I, I am analyzing everything around me just about the things that people say and the expressions on people's face and I am often thinking to myself I wonder why they said that with that tone of voice I wonder why they had that expression on their face and and now I, I have gained enough I hope gained enough wisdom and maturity to realize that not everybody is like me and a majority of the time those those Tones of voice or those expressions that I am overanalyzing meant nothing at all. Meant nothing. But, and, and, you know, you won't understand this unless you are this type of person. But if you are this type of person, you know, it can be, it's exhausting. It's very tiring. One of the, one of the marks of extroverted people is that they get they draw their energy from being around people other people energize them and being with people being in so they're the social butterflies they like being with people and that it energizes them introverts are just the opposite being being with people being around people is is tiring is draining it's not that it's not that we don't like people it's just that kind of that temperament, that predisposition to always be thinking and analyzing. I wonder what that meant. I wonder what about that. And so, you know, it's easier for me if I let myself do what I feel like doing most of the time. It's, it's just easier for me not to be with people. Um, is everybody okay? Everybody okay? All right. 
I know, I, I'm, I'm your pastor. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to engage and enter in your life, okay? I'm not going to separate myself. I, I'm committed to you. I'm committed to this church. So I need to, need to say that. But I'm just trying to, trying to let you know. And I'm sure, I'm sure that there are, uh, there are others out there. In this size uh, of a congregation, I have some kindred spirits here you would say, yeah, pastor, I understand exactly what you're saying. Um, But this was not the Pharisee. He didn't separate himself because he was an introvert. He separated himself because he felt like he was better than. That's how he started his prayer. Oh, Lord, thank you that I'm not like other men. I'm a good guy. I don't commit all of these sins. I'm not like these extortioners, unjust people, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. But I fast twice a week. I go above and beyond. I give tithes of everything that I get. So I'm, I'm the good guy. You know, some stories you can read and ask yourself this question. Who would you want to be in the story? Would you want to be the good guy in the story or the bad guy in the story? Now, I don't want to push this too far or too hard. But if we forget ourselves, most of us in this room are in danger. Our danger is in being the good guy. That is being the Pharisee. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not like other men. Thank you, I'm a good guy. Um, because that's what, the, that's what this man was. He was, the, he was the Bible scholar. He was the Bible student. He was the one who had mo- mo- most of it probably committed to memory. He was the, the one who was very careful in how he lived his life, strictly according to the law. He was the philanthropist, the one who was very, uh, he was free in his charitable giving. He was well known for his religious lifestyle, well known. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not telling you that he, he was wrong or that Jesus was telling uh, people that he was wrong because of his religious lifestyle. What this is all about is not about the fact that he lived a religious lifestyle, but it was about his attitude. Verse 9, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Don't get me wrong, I'm thankful for the change that God can make in a person's life. And I want to be clear that we are, we are Wesleyans, and one of the things that that means is that our, our uh, righteousness, yes, it is Christ's righteousness imparted to us, but it is more than just God, you know, some people explain it this way, the righteousness of Christ 
is like a robe that goes over our sinful, dirty hearts so that when God looks at us, He does not see our sinful, dirty hearts. He sees the righteousness of Christ. We do not believe as Wesleyans that that is what the Bible teaches. Yes, we believe that the righteousness of Christ is imparted to us. It is a a legal transaction that takes place in heaven that when we by faith receive the free gift of salvation through Christ, we are declared righteous and it is not our righteousness, it is the righteousness of Christ. But what we also believe is that through sanctification, God begins the work of, I'm sorry, I, I, I mixed my words up, imputing and imparting. Imputed is that word. That's the word I was trying, I was needing to say a moment ago. That is the word that means Christ's righteousness is credited to us regardless of our actual righteousness. But we believe it goes beyond that. Through sanctification, God also works to impart the righteousness of Christ to us. That makes us actually righteous. But even that is not our own righteousness, but it is Christ's within. Well, let's look for a minute at the bad guy. The bad guy also separated himself. Verse 13, the tax collector standing far off. You know, I mentioned a moment ago there are a variety of reasons why people separate themselves. And the tax tax collector separated himself simply because of his own sense of shame and unworthiness to be with others in the temple, in the house of God, worshiping. There are still those of us that can identify. I I really identify very little. Well, let me back up. I I can identify some with the Pharisee. Maybe I'll say more about that in a minute. Um, But I think I identify more with the tax collector in the fact that a lot of times I just don't like myself very much. Maybe there would be some here that would be a kindred spirit in that regard, and you'd say, yes, pastor, I know what it is not to like myself very much. And I kind of think that that's what the tax collector was doing. He separated himself, but not because he was aloof and wanted to be apart. It was because of shame. He had nothing to offer, nothing for himself. Notice his posture It says he would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. I don't know how well you know Jewish culture or history, but the Jewish posture for prayer, our typical posture for prayer is to bow our our heads and close our eyes. You maybe fold your hands or or what have you. The, The posture for prayer for the Jew is to lift their eyes to heaven because that's where God is. So they would lift their eyes to heaven. This man, his posture was not, uh, he didn't have the confidence, he didn't have uh, the, the faith to lift his eyes towards heaven, but his eyes were, were downcast. Notice his humiliation as it says he beat on his breast, he beat on his chest. And, and this is something that men did not do in Jewish culture. 
It was characteristic of the women who in expressions of grief or mourning they would beat on their breasts. And uh, men did not do it, especially not in public. But here he is taking this posture of, of his head down and beating on his breast. And then notice his prayer. He says, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now we're going to come back to his prayer in just a moment. But notice then the setting. We have the good guy, so-called, the Pharisee. Then we have the bad guy, the tax collector. Notice the setting, verse 10. We back up a little bit. And it says, two men went up into the temple to pray. Now, there are two ways that we could take this. There could have been a, a random time of private prayer when people would just randomly at, at different times go to the temple to pray. But most likely that is not what is happening here. There were two times of daily sacrifice you can read about it in Exodus chapter 29, verses 38 and 39. I won't take the time to read that verse, but it simply explains the institution of the daily sacrifices that were made, a lamb a year old, and one was sacrificed in the morning, and one was sacrificed in the evening, and it happened every day, day after day after day. One in the morning, one in the evening. And so the people would come during these times, and those lambs were offered as, a, as an atoning sacrifice uh, for the sins of the people. And uh, the priest would then uh, would, would take that blood and sprinkle it in various places. And then he would go in behind uh, the curtain into the holy place to burn incense before the holy of holies. The Holy of Holies, they would only enter once a year. But the outer court, the holy place, uh, is where the, uh, the seven-branched uh, candlestick was, and then you had the table of showbread, and then you also had the altar of incense. And the priest would go in there at every time of sacrifice, of the morning and evening sacrifice, and burn incense before the Lord. And if, if you want another little reference for this, you can read about that in Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1 is when uh, the angel appears before Zacharias and, and foretells the birth of John the Baptist. And uh, verse 8 of Luke chapter 1, it says, While Zacharias was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So imagine with me, here's, here's what's happening. It's just imagine this is what's happening here, that um, at a certain time in our service, you know, the, the sacrifice of the lamb has been made and the priest is doing whatever he's done with that sacrifice, and then the time comes for the priest to go behind the curtain and burn incense uh, before the Holy of Holies. And so you are left sitting or standing in the, in the congregation looking at an empty platform. So what do you do during this time? Well, during this time, this is the natural time for private prayer to take place. So the people would be there uh, while waiting, while the priest has gone behind the curtain into the holy place to burn incense, and they're praying. And, and this is the setting at which most likely this has taken place. <clears throat> so here we have these two men, 
And one is talking about his own goodness. Now understand what has just happened. A lamb has been sacrificed to atone for the sins of the people. And the Pharisee is essentially saying, you know, God, I'm a pretty good guy. I, I really don't think I need that sacrificial lamb. That's, in essence, what he's saying. I, I, I'm not like other men. I'm not an adulterer, an extortioner. I'm not even like the tax collector. I'm a good guy. I, I do all of these good things. So, thanks, God, but no thanks. I'm good. I'm okay. The tax collector says, with head bowed, beating on his, his chest as an expression of, of humility and mourning, God be merciful to me. Now, there are, there are two words that he could have used when we have this, this prayer, Lord, be merciful to me. The first word, the most common word used for mercy, the mercy of God, is the Greek word alias, alias, something like that. That, that is the word uh, that you find in, in Matthew chapter 5 in the Beatitudes when Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain or they shall receive mercy. It's the word alias. And the, the basic meaning, uh, this is not a... a uh, a theologically correct definition, but this is kind of a summary definition. The basic meaning of this alias is that it is the kindness and goodness of God to, to withhold the judgment that we justly deserve and offer us salvation. Now, we need that. I need that, right? But this is not the word that the tax collector uses when he prays, God be merciful to me. The word that he uses is the word halaskameus, something like that, uh, or, or, or halaskamoi. Um, uh, my Greek is rusty. And that is a word that has to do with propitiation. It is a propitiation, which is an atoning sacrifice made to turn away wrath. In other words, he's saying, let God, let this lamb that has just been sacrificed, let it be for the covering, for the payment of my sin. Let it be for me. I, I need it. Now, I, I, I need to say something uh, about the way this word propitiation is made uh, or, or the way the word is used. Um, we define it typically as an atoning sacrifice made to turn away wrath. The word was commonly used of the ancient uh, Greek gods from Greek mythology and uh, all of the gods of other religions that their typical posture towards humanity was to be angry or to be mad at them. And so offerings and sacrifices had to be made as a propitiation to appease the wrath of that god. That's where the whole idea of animal sacrifices came from. The difference between the propitiation made to the Greek gods, though, and other pagan gods is that it, it is the source. When 
humans tried to appease those gods, they made the offerings themselves. They brought the offering, and they hoped that they were doing enough to appease the god that they were trying to, that they were trying to satisfy. The difference here is that God himself has provided the sacrificial lamb as the propitiation. In the first case of the Pharisee, he's essentially saying, you know, God, I'm, I'm a pretty good guy. I really don't need the sacrifice. The tax collector is saying, oh, would you let the sacrifice be for me? It's, it's an acknowledgement of guilt and debt. It is an acknowledgement of an inability to repay. The Pharisee thought he was good enough on his own. He proclaimed his own righteousness. But the tax collector knew that he could never be good enough. And in his prayer, be merciful to me. Let this propitiation, this sacrifice, let it be for me. Let it, be, let it atone for my sin. He's acknowledging I, I'm not good enough. I can never pay the debt. It is also an acknowledgement of the gracious provision of a God who is merciful. So you see, friends, if the religion of the Pharisee were true, if it were about his own goodness, then we would have something to boast about. He would have something to boast about. If we could, by our own effort, get ourselves to this standing of righteousness before God and, and goodness and say, I, I'm, I'm a good person, I, I'm not a sinful person, I do good things, then we would have something to boast about. We would have something to be arrogant about. But it is nothing to do with effort, but it is completely through faith. You see, the, the price has been paid. Here in this story, it is the setting of the sacrificial lamb, but Jesus himself became that sacrificial lamb. And we cannot, by our own effort, be good enough, but we can, by faith in the sacrifice that Christ made, receive the righteousness of Christ credited to our account. We can't do enough good deeds to purchase our salvation. It's not about our goodness like the Pharisee proclaimed, but rather it is through the grace of God. It is through the grace of God. So you see, friends, Christianity and the gospel are not inherently arrogant, but rather they are inherently humbling. Because the whole basis for our belief, the whole basis for the gospel is not in anything that we can do. It is not in any effort that we can exercise on our own, but rather it is in us simply coming to the cross of Jesus Christ and acknowledging our inability, acknowledging the lack of our own goodness and righteousness and saying, God, I need the sacrifice that you have provided through Jesus Christ. And so it is inherently humbling. The Apostle Paul gives us these words in Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. 
Now the righteousness of God has been manifested or revealed apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness. Verse 27, Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. Paul is saying there's no room for boasting in the gospel. By what kind of law, he asks? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law, or is God the God of Jews only? I'm going to pause right there. We are justified by faith apart from the works of the law. It is not by anything that you and I can do or have done that we can be saved, but it is simply by the grace of God. And because of this, there's no room for any of us to be arrogant, no room for any of us to look down our noses at someone else as better than they are. But it is simply that we have received by faith the grace of God the same way they can receive it, the same way the worst of sinners in this world can come to God and receive the gift, the free gift of salvation. A student that I went to Bible college with told a story about a time in his life when he had had really made a mess of his life. He had been rebellious, and, and this was long before the days of cell phones, and it was during a day when you may, some of you remember, it was expensive to talk on the phone. Do you remember when it was expensive to talk on the phone? That, that thing that you had hanging on the wall? And if you could, you would wait until the evening to make your long-distance calls. you remember that? Because it was a little bit cheaper during that time. This was during that time frame, a number of years ago. And he said he had run up a phone bill at his parents' house that was over $500. And he was in trouble. And he said his dad took him out to a restaurant and they sat down at a table. I think maybe they had a meal together. And his dad took all of those phone bills amounting to over $500 and laid them out in front of him. And I remember being in, in school with this young man. He said, it was a, he said it was an amount, it was a debt that I could never, I could not have paid. You know, $500 may not seem like that much these days. It still seems like a lot to me, but <laughs> it was a lot more then. Um, and he said, I could never repay it. But he said, my dad took all of those phone bills and stacked them up and said, I've got these covered. I will pay this bill. And then he gave me a crisp $100 bill and said, this is yours. Now you start over again with this. And that's a picture of God's grace. None of us can pay the debt 
we owe. But God looks at our debts and considers them paid because of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so, friends, as Christians, and I, we may come back to this one more time because I think there's a particular danger for holiness people in this area. There is never a point at which we do not need the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. We live day by day depending on the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. We are saved by that blood, by His grace. We are kept by His grace through faith. It's not because we are good people. Let's stand together, please.